This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Your best insight into Utah Jazz basketball and the NBA in Utah. For the next two hours, it's nothing but NBA conversation from the local front to around the association. Now let's get things rolling with Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome into the Salt City Hoops show. I'm Andy Larson alongside Ben Dowsett. We are the editors of SaltCityHoops.com. That's your ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz. The 3-6 and six Utah Jazz now after two losses at, uh, against the Indiana Pacers. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things to talk about about this road trip. Obviously, the Jazz are three games through this road trip. Uh, and, you know, I think the last two games against Indiana and Atlanta especially have been disappointing in how the Jazz have given up, you know, relatively big leads in the fourth quarter as they... they Kind of snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, if you will. So uh, we want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, the three biggest issues for the Jazz right now. We'll get into that this segment. Also on the show later, we've got Ian Levy from uh, Hickory High, from Nylon Calculus, from 538. Basically, he's the general guru of NBA analytics. And so we're going to talk to him about the Jazz's play thus far, what we think about their pace and defense. And then we'll go around the NBA a little bit, talk, uh, talk with Ian about how, what the state of the association's like. And there's, there's a lot of fun things going on from, from the Lakers being bad. Uh, Kobe Bryant got the most misses ever. We've got a uh, poor Denver team to talk about. And then, of course, you know, on the good side of the ledger, Toronto's played well, Memphis has played well, Houston has played well, so we want to talk about those things. But Ben, got, how are got, you? I'm great. we got Dan Clayton, too, don't we? Oh, Yes, good point. So we've got Dan on the show as well. He's going to be joining us. He wrote a great article today about some of the, the five myths of the Jazz season thus far. So, you know, we hear from Craig Bullerjack, Matt Harpering, kind of all the uh, anal- the analysts, if you will, um, around the team. The talking heads is really <laughs> the more appropriate way to say it. Uh, and I think not all of them are true. Not all of the evidence does not bear everything out that you hear. Let's put it that way. So we'll have Dan on the show to talk about those sort of things. But first, let's get into to what's going on with the Jazz. And, and I, I think the last two games especially have shown the the three biggest issues for the Jazz right now. And and we'll get into them. It's Trey Burke's play, and and this is in my mind, and I'm I welcome feedback on these you know is there's something else in your mind that's the biggest reason that the jazz aren't an above 500 team right now speaking of which we're going to be taking some calls later so keep your mind on those if you have them good call um so we've got three biggest issues for the jazz right now trey burke's play pace of play and defense overall i think Fair I, would to say? Ag- I would agree good so let's let's start with trey burke the the point guard for the utah jazz he had an excellent preseason and, and i think we thought that he would he would show more than he has so far in this early in the early part of the regular season. And he hasn't. Let me give you some quick stats if you don't mind. Oh yeah, I love stats. Oh good. This is what we're all about. I mean, if so, if you haven't listened to the show before, if you don't know who Andy and Ben are, we're we're analytics guys. We we like stats. We like having evidence backing up what we say. We we don't like being just the talking heads without the the stats to back up our viewpoint. We like hard evidence. We like numbers. We like as a way data. Of, as a way of contextualizing what's going on the court. Right. No, and, and that's not to say, you know, we watch the games. We watch many more NBA games than I, I think. I watch a sickening amount of NBA basketball. <laughs> Good. But that being said, we like the stats. So anyway, Trey Burke's stats. Shooting only 30% from the floor so far. Oof. Only 21% from three. 
that's not good for no, a point guard or no, any any kind of guard, any kind of player. It's not good for anyone. Percent and he's shooting five a game roughly. It's not good for anyone shooting that many of them. He is averaging five point nine assists per game. That's actually down a little bit from last year. Six point three assists per game. We talked before the season began whether or not he could get to seven. So far, he's he's on the lower side of that. Um, and then I think the more worrying thing is just how the Jazz are playing when he's on the floor. So the the Jazz score about 2.3 points more per 100 possessions. So, you know, about there are usually about 100 possession, possessions in an NBA game. So, you know, if you're if you're not familiar with the pace statistics, you can look at that as the Jazz are 2.3 points better offensively when Trey is off the court. Essentially, it's a way of, of uh, different teams play at different speeds. So it's a way of, of evening out for that, right? And it's for that same reason. That's why, as we've talked about, the Jazz were very bad in terms of their per 100 possessions defense last year. But if you just looked at their pure points per game allowed, it actually wasn't 30th in the league. But that's because they played at a snail's pace the entire time, right? Right, exactly. So, And that's what those points per game stats that you see are kind of fool you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because the Jazz do play so slowly, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. That they look like they're a bad offensive team when in fact they're actually a quite good one. Mm-hmm. Um, the pace of play stats help us with with regards to analyzing player performance as well. So anyway, they're they're better offensively when Trey's off the court. That's not good. And then they're eight point one points per or sorry points per hundred possessions better when Trey is off the court defensively as well. That's a huge gap. So overall, the Jazz are ten points worse when Trey Burke is on the floor. Uh, and when you take into account both offense and defense, I think Jazz fans hoped that he would be better both offensively and defensively this season. And in fact, he's been worse in both. Worst, worse in both categories. Yeah, I mean, and it's worrying, right? It's it's worrying, and especially you mentioned the preseason earlier. And of course, as we've said a million times, you can't take too much from a preseason. But you compare it to last year's preseason, where he was terrible. He had a really really hard time couldn't really do anything and then you compare it to this preseason and the narrative seemed to be very different coming in I agree you even look at the 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 biggest worry to me at this point is becoming that this is not only a mental thing if this was only that that Trey is still learning the system and that he's you know he's not understanding certain defensive rotations and yada yada that would be one story which of course would still be an issue but it's an issue that you can fix with a smart new coach things like that but for me there's a lot of physical going on here as well, and shooting is, is a big part of it, and it's a young season so far, but these numbers shooting are, are, are very surprising to me. You look at it, even his final year in Michigan, he shot nearly 39% from three, which is, it's a shorter three-point line in college, different situations and everything, but he was the focal point of his team there too. He was one of the right. best players in the country that year. A lot of those were off-balance, ridiculous shots that he made. We remember the highlight reel. It's very surprising to me that his shooting has been this bad, and he is getting a lot of wide-open looks that he just isn't able to knock down. I don't see his form being any different than it was. Do you? I, I haven't noticed any big differences, and, and even from his, from his college days, and from that perspective, it's been it's been it's flummoxed me to to some degree why he isn't really even on these again these exceedingly wide open shots just has not been able to put them in the hoop yeah I I think that's the biggest difference I mean we we look at why the Jazz are worse when he's on the floor offensively and I think that's that's the biggest reason I I think he's facilitating fine you know sure the assists per game are down a little bit but that might just be because you know defenses aren't really respecting his shot right now once once they do have to respect his shot he can pass it off you know off those opportunities and get assists from them I just I I don't know I I don't know if he, he hasn't shown the ability to shoot that well in the NBA I mean last year he was a bad shooter mm-hmm. as well I mean not this bad but still not a below average NBA point guard certainly yeah 
And in fact, I believe his efficiency numbers have even gone down from last year thus far. And again, early sample size, there's still a lot of room for that to improve. And that, of course, doesn't only speak to shooting. That speaks to a number of elements on the court. It's It's been a little bit weird. To, and the Jazz as a team have had a lot of trouble making their open shots. Uh, this is something that I've been noting on my Twitter after a number of games. There have been several games this year where the Jazz have been... have have converted uncontested shots, which we can now view using the sport view logs on NBA.com, where they've converted these at 20 to 30% less rates than their opponents, which is a, a huge discre- Like last night is a great example. The Jazz had, I believe, 11 or 12 more uncontested shots than Atlanta did, hmm. but they made 23% less of them or something like that. And that's a hu- I mean, you lost the game by three points. Right. You can pretty much bring it down to that if you wanted to. So basically what you're telling me is Quinn Snyder's Offense is working, the system is working, but the shots aren't going down. Exactly. Well, and even with a lot of these shots going down, the Jazz have still been one of the better offenses in the league. So that shows you what might be happening if all these wide open looks were getting made. That's a good point. Okay, so then I guess the next question is like, how how real is this? You know, how good can Trey Burke be? Do you think he can make it through this slump? And and if so, can he become an above average NBA point guard either this season or I mean? We're worried about next season. We're worried about the future with Trey Burke, especially with Dante Exum right behind. Absolutely. And, you know, I said before, it's a little bit of physical and a little bit of mental. Things like shot selection can absolutely improve. That's that's not something that I expect to stay bad. And that's something he and and his his brother in last name, Alec Burks, both need to vastly improve their their shot selection. Both have been far too comfortable settling for that long mid-range shot with lots of time left on the shot clock when they could be looking for better options. You just told me they were getting a lot of open shots. Well, no, oh, oh, no, they are. Okay. It's both. They, it is both. It can be both at the same time. And the the shooting part, I think, to me is the is the biggest test of whether this is real or not. If if this is a player that is just on, in a prolonged slump, and maybe he is because he was he was great over the preseason, over a similar number of games, and shooting the ball isn't that much different in the, the <laughs> still ten feet high in the, yeah. in the in the preseason. If he can get that back to his normal levels, then I would say, or back to what was expected of him coming out of college, I should say, I, I would say that this is something that he can break out of. This is never going to be. An elite defender, not even close, most likely. This is never, he's not too tall. He's a little bit short for the position. Right. Some things like that. But if he can be a guy that can at least force defenses to keep him honest, then he's going to be a productive piece in a Jazz offense that has dangerous weapons elsewhere. See, uh, and I, I think that's possible. I think he can absolutely be that productive piece in the offense. I think the more worrying thing for the Jazz front office is whether or not he can be a good defender. Yeah. And so far this season, and again, this is something he was doing well in the preseason where he was going over screens, was working on that, was was not dying on pick and roll as much. And, you know, NBA point guards go through 60 to 70, you know, pick and roll plays per game. There's a ton of screen action in the NBA that you have to go around as an NBA point guard. And Trey is consistently one of the worst point guards at not dying on those screens, at not staying with his man. And and it hurts the Jazz. I was hoping he would do significantly better this season, and he just hasn't thus far. Yeah, and that was something I highlighted that in the preseason repeatedly. How physically better he, how quicker, and how much more quick he just he looked. And yeah, a lot of that seems to have gone. Maybe that's maybe he's the same, and the pace around him has picked up, and he hasn't been able to adjust. Hmm. I, I think that's possible. I, I mean, and that's that's what's worrying to me is because. Trey Burke's not going to get any quicker on the floor, you know. He's not going to become more athletic. He's not going to become more agile. So then, how does he become a better defender on those pick and roll plays? I I, I don't know that I have an answer. I don't think right he. I, I don't know if he does, and that's what worries me about Trey Burke moving forward. Let's go on to the next point. Point two: pace of play. The Jazz are currently the twenty seventh fastest team in the NBA, so that's the fourth worst of all the teams in the league. And Quinn Snyder talked about this being an emphasis of this team, an emphasis of his coaching, that the Jazz were going to be 
playing uh, playing more quickly than they were in the past in order to get those better offensive opportunities. So, so far the Jazz are, like I said, 27th in just number of possessions per game. They're taking sixth. Uh, they're, sorry, they're sixth in the total shots taken in the last four seconds of the shot clock. So they're taking a lot of these like clock running down kind of crazy jump shots that, that, that truthfully aren't going to work a lot. Um, but they're also taking more shots in the first six seconds of the shot clock. So that tells me when they do get the ball in fast break, they are, they are pushing it. Mm-hmm. It's just that once they get in the half court, everything slows down. They're having they're having some definite issues there, and that's compared to last year, right? Taking more shots in the first Correct. second, six seconds compared to last year. Yet another fun thing we can look at using the sport view data. Um, they've done poorly also, as we've seen with the shot clock turned off, meaning that in those little end of quarter type of plays, which of course are a very very small sample size at this point, and this could change, but so far they haven't been particularly good in those either. What do you what do you think plays into this? Because of course we, we've heard the emphasis everywhere. I'm going to eat crow if it continues like this because I predicted in my preseason piece that the Jazz would be a top ten team in pace for the year, and I'm looking really wrong at the moment. <laughs> what what do you think of the? Is this are they trying and just failing, or is this the players not yet being ingrained enough in their heads to to know that this is what they need to be doing and to instinctively do it? I don't think their offense, as set up, will ever be a top ten pace team. And I just think that the flow that the Jazz play in and, and the play calls mean that they spend more time in the first 10, 15 seconds of the shot clock doing that rather than, than getting opportunities. I mean, Quinn's talked about playing with a pass, and the Jazz are indeed leading the NBA in passes made. So they're, they're doing a good job of that. It's just those passes take up time. You know, mm-hmm. They don't have the players that can just take advantage of even the smallest creek in the defense. They have to pass it around in order to take full advantage of when the defense makes a mistake or when they're able to gain an advantage on on pick and roll or whatever have you. I think there's just no way, given that they're trying to pass it for the best possible shot, they're waiting for that best possible opportunity, I think they're going to be, you know, in the at least below average um, in, in terms of pace uh, unless that changes, unless they get a star that can take advantage of that. And, uh, and you yeah. know, that I don't think is on the horizon. I think it, you're you're right. It plays a lot into actually the talent because here's the thing about play with the pass play with the pass is a, an excellent motto of course it's it's worked really well for teams like the spurs but here's the thing about the spurs the spurs have several guys who individually are capable of creating the types of doubles and defensive rotations to where once you start passing and exploit those that's where the open shots come from the jazz just have far outside of gordon hayward they don't really have that play and even he's not all you know he's no lebron james he's he except at uh, league of legends he (laughs) they don't have that guy or two guys who can really initiate those rotations draw the defense gravity on the defense is a term lots of people like to use they don't have as many of those players and when that's the case these passes are less meaningful a lot of the time they are making the passes as you said leading the league in the number of passes they've made but those passes aren't as meaningful yeah, and I, I think that's a big worry about for the Jazz offensively. I th- I think it's actually you know we forget sometimes that pace is also kind of a defensive statistic. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you are able to keep your opponent with the ball for a long time, that's that's usually helpful. Um, so far, it hasn't been though with the Jazz defense. And I, I think that's an interesting question to kind of look at the the trade off between pace and defense. Uh, something that Quinn Snyder will have to look at. One other pace-related thing I want to look at before we move on to that defense, though, is that the pace is actually higher with Trey Burke on the floor than the ultra-speedy, ultra-quick Dante Exum. What do, what do you think about that? I think that has to has to be chalked up to, first of all, it's not a huge difference, and second of all, I think it almost has to be chalked up to, to Dante just not having the... the he's got the, the, the foot speed himself to play in the NBA. Of course, we've seen it, but he doesn't yet have the... 
is has not yet adjusted to the speed, I think is what I should say. He's not, again, he's not in a point where he's getting the ball off an opponent miss and the first thing instinctively in his head without him even having to think about it is go. Go find a screen, find an open guy, find something to start the defense moving back. And, and that's what the elite point guards in the NBA do is as mm-hmm. soon as they get the ball, they push, 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 push. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it from like Russell Westbrook. We see it from Chris Paul. I mean, we've seen it from like Jason Kidd in the past. That was one of his, his best characteristics. Tony Parker is super underrated at it. And, so, the Sp- and the Spurs do a ton of stuff that just really helps them out with that. They set the screen. They What is called a drag screen. For those who don't know what a drag screen is, it's when a, a big or not necessarily always a big who's, all, who's still running down the court in transition just Boom, stops, sets a pick right mm. there. Has the defense backpedaling. The Spurs do an absolute ton of that stuff. I want to see more of that for the Jazz, although, of, of course, some of that's on the bigs as well. they got to get down the floor. Yeah, maybe that's it. Is, is, you know, maybe the teammates need to help out the point guards in, in terms of setting the pace. Um, do you th- how, where do you think the Jazz end up in the end of the season? I mean, do you still think they'll be top 10? Because I, I mean, at this point, they're almost too far behind <laughs> to see that as possible. That's but I think there's almost no chance they finish this low. They've, Quinn has got to be hammering this home. And he, he, I think he knows that it's a, tra- it's a learning process for these guys. This is a, a lot of these guys, you know, the, when you think about the systems they've played for the majority of the rest of their careers, the, a lot of these guys under Ty Corbin last year, right. Trey Burke at Michigan, things like that, they didn't play in these kinds of systems. They played in systems that are, when you get the ball, you slow it down, you run your half-court offense, right? And that takes a lot of getting used to when you've done a certain thing for a really, really long time and you're being told to do something else that in a lot of ways is more risky in players' heads. You know, you're running into the teeth of the defense more often. You're getting into things quicker. There's more variability. I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement, even if my original top 10 prediction might not end up coming true. I just don't think the Jazz have the training camp time. I, I'm going to disagree with you. I don't think the Jazz have the practice time to, to really make a change that drastically in how they play between now and the rest you, of the season. You can, you can, you can and so I, I think the Jazz probably end up, I, I mean, they may not end up 27th, but I bet they end up like 23rd, 24th, 25th. You know, I, I bet they end up in that bottom 10 group of teams in terms of how, how fast they play. I just don't see them having those kind of players that really push the ball as a matter of habit. Let's move on to our the third leg of our third-legged stool of what what's kind of disappointed us about the Jazz thus far. And that's the defense. So, uh, obviously, another thing that Quinn Snyder talked a lot about, the Jazz are currently 28th in the league defensively, the third worst team. At least that's better than last season when they were either the worst or second worst team, depending on what metric you looked at. So there has been improvement, but it's improvement by just one spot. Um, now, the Jazz have played a lot of really good offenses, and that's what Quinn Snyder uh, brings up when, when you bring the stat to him. But that being said, in the last three games, you know, the, the schedule's gotten easier. They've played Detroit, they've played Indiana, they've played uh, Atlanta, and they're still, you know, still not doing a good job on the defensive end. So the only team, two teams worse are the Lakers, who, <laughs> which is... We always get a chance to laugh at, which I enjoy. And um, they're so bad. They're staying 30th for the whole year. Yeah, there's no, right now they're on pace for the worst defense ever. The oh. worst defensive rating ever in the hu- entire history of the, the NBA. Does that include? No one has had a worse defense than Lakers have. Is that include adjusted, like era adjusted? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so that's not ideal. Um, and, and then the Cleveland Cavaliers, who are, you know obviously have a lot of talent, they don't have the defense together right now. They're the only two teams in the league that are worse. 
I I would have to think the Cavs are going to get better. I mean, if they start trying at some point, who knows if right. that's, who knows if that's going to happen? The Lakers, though, no, it's it's definitely not happening. But that being said, that the Jazz are in that echelon is not a good sign no. for what we thought they would be. I mean, so let me give you some more specific stats. Like, who's at fault? Why is this the case? Well, so Burke, Alec Burks, and Trey Burke have the worst on-court, off-court differential. So you know, when for example, we gave the stat earlier that Trey Burke, uh, when he's off the floor, the Jazz are eight points better defensively. That's a that's a big difference. Trey Burke, or sorry, Alec Burks is almost as bad. But then if you look at how the opponents have played, it's actually the front court that might be the issue. So you know, we looking at eighty two games keeps track of how well the each individual matchup plays uh, against each of the Jazz starting starting lineup. So Hayward, for example, does a great job of this. He allows only an eight point eight opponent PER average is fifteen. That basically means that he makes whoever he's guarding turn into like. Raja Bell out there, you know, someone Raja's who's, a very nice person and is not a very good basketball player. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, Derek Favors is allowing a 23.1 PER. Ennis Cantor is allowing a 25 PER. And that's mm. like very good superstar level. 25 is all-star every year. If you have yeah. a 25 PER, you're making the all-star game. So he makes everyone he looks like, like an, looks like, look like an all-star. And, and, you know, I think we've seen that in the first nine games so far. So, you know, Dwight Howard put up 10 of 16. Dirk put up 9 of 13 in only 23 minutes. Um, he had 27 points in 28 minutes in the next time he played the Jazz. Blake Griffin had 31 points on 14 for 21 shooting. Roy Hibbert, who is not an offensive superstar whatsoever, put up 29 points. Millsap last night put up 30 points and 17 rebounds against the the Jazz's front court. So, uh, I mean, uh, ideally, especially Favors, I think we we think is a good defensive player, but I I don't think he's shown that thus far, at least against his matchup. He may be helping the Jazz in terms of you know protecting the paint on guards coming into the lane, but then he's also letting his, his guy score on the other end. Is he, is he helping with that, though? The Jazz maybe. have allowed the fifth most points in the paint in the league <laughs> so far. That's a good point. So per, maybe, and that's a per-minute stat. That's not just like a counting stat. That's that's per minute on the court. So maybe maybe he's not helping with that. But it, here's the, my problem with Derek Favors is that he looks like, when I watch the games, it looks like he's doing the right thing. Yeah, that part, the, his opponent PER does not match up with my eye test, and it makes me wonder whether whether or not there's little bits of noise in there that we're not accounting That's for true. correctly, or maybe whether my eye test is off. But that happened last year too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was. I, I thought he looked good last year, and then, again, the Jazz had a bad defense. I, I worry about that. And then we also look at, uh, again, Quinn Snyder's point of emphasis that uh, to play with transition defense, to have one of the better transition defense in the league, the Jazz are currently allowing the 11th most fast break points um, and 4th most opponent points on turnovers, despite only being 12th in turnovers in the whole league. So that tells me both that they're not doing that well on the primary break, but then the secondary break when you know the guys are getting kind of getting these trailer threes or trailer opportunities is also hurting the Jazz. That's not what Quinn Snyder wanted at all. And even potentially more worrisome is that when you look at Rudy Gobert, who you're, ex- you're, when you're thinking about Rudy Gobert, you think, okay, this is a guy who the Jazz's offense is going to suffer a little bit when he comes on the court compared to those first two starters. But defensively, because of his amazing abilities there, should be significantly better, right? Well, not really. Has been very, very close to similar, both when mm. he's been on and off the court, which I think shows that this is a full team thing. This is a this isn't just any one guy where you know I think the front court plays a big part like we're saying, but I think everyone is missing assignments. I think the Jazz have had a lot of trouble as I was saying to you earlier today. I think the Jazz have had a ton of trouble with just simply finding good shooters 
as they cross half court and get in. And that sounds so simple, yeah, right? Yeah, it's basic like, stuff. You've been doing this since high school or earlier if you're playing basketball. But Kyle Korver last night walked across half court and had nobody on him like two or three times. That's Kyle Korver. And it's Kyle Korver. That's one of the best three-point shooters in the history of basketball. They did this. It was happening with Dirk all the time. I mean, and I guess with Dirk it's a little more understandable because it's a big man who's used to dropping back into the paint. But at the same time, this is what we have scouting reports for. This right. is what we have practice for. Like And simple stuff like this, especially with a team that, as we've noted, has a number of issues everywhere. Quinn doesn't have time to go over this stuff in practice. He just doesn't. You have to do it. It's got to be incredibly frustrating for him because I mean, it's not like he's not telling the players, hey guys, Kyle Korver and, and Dirk Nowitzki, they're good shooters. Yeah. You know, everyone on the floor knows that. It's just the execution isn't there so far, and, and that's really disappointing. Again, I was hoping that the Jazz would be an average defensive team. So far, they're not even close, and, and I hope that that is able to improve over the course of the season. I think that's something that could be helped by rotations. I was going to say, do you think it can? I, I think it can because rotation changes could occur. I think we could see more Trevor Booker. I think we could see more Rudy Gobert, especially maybe some favors next to Gobert, which would which would help out these defensive issues a lot. And they've had their best defensive rating uh, with Go- with Booker on the court so far hmm. uh, of any maybe, individual players. Maybe he's part of the solution as well. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and take a break. On the other side of the break, we've got Dan Clayton. He's a Salt City Hoops writer. He wrote an excellent piece on the five myths so far of the Jazz season. We'll have him on the other side of the break. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Talking hoops and the association, this is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, welcome back to the show. This is the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700. We are the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, so check us out if you haven't already at saltcityhoops.com. Basically, we've got awesome daily content breaking down every aspect of the Utah Jazz and the NBA on saltcityhoops.com, so check it out if you haven't already. One of our featured writers on that site is Dan Clayton. Dan was actually the former Spanish radio voice for the Utah Jazz, um, and, and it just continually blows us away with his pieces each week of, of how insightful they are on various aspects of, of the Utah Jazz. So this week he wrote this great piece of, about five myths so far. You know, what what are the myths that need to be busted about the Jazz this season? Dan, are you there? Hey, Jens. How you doing? Good. So we've got Andy and Ben with you. Um, I, I want to go through each of these myths and kind of uh, talk to you. And then I've got one more issue that we talked about on Twitter yesterday that I... I think you have got a good opinion on so number one though uh, your myth number one on the site is Ennis Cantor needs to stick to the corner three what are your thoughts on that well right now he's shooting 22 percent on the corner three and he's shooting 50 percent around every other kind of three so you know it might be it might be an accurate statement based on the spacing that Quinn Snyder wants for this jazz team but it is certainly not the reason why Ennis Cantor hasn't started out shooting the ball like everyone had hoped. He actually, you know, if early sample is any indication, um, and keep in mind, when I say early sample, we're talking about nine total attempts in the corners and six total attempts above the breaks. But if those first 15 attempts are any indication, it would actually do better to scoot out of the corners and get out front where so far he's shooting better. I can't believe that's going to last long term, though, right? Well, I don't know. You know, some people just the that angle is an easier angle. Um, you know, I, I'm not a pro athlete, but I, I've always like for a long time a, a free throw line extended left side 15 footer was just my shot. I could come off a screen and hit that shot like eight times out of ten. It, it, it was great. I would take the same shot from the baseline, and I would just have a hard time with it. Right? Sometimes when you 
don't have the backboard there to help you visualize the shot going in. I don't know. Weird things happen in the minds of shooters, and I'm not saying that uh, that you know Cantor's mind works like um, you know mine, since I'm nowhere near the basketball player he is. But it's just you know it's a it's a different shot, and and maybe he like a lot of people just have an easier time with uh, with those out out front shots. I mean, we'll see. Because again, to the point. You know, three for six is a nice start on above-the-break threes, but it doesn't guarantee anything from a sample perspective. I'm just glad that we have the scouting report for Dan, Dan Clayton on our, our for our next pickup game. Yeah, <laughs> I'm on it. That elbow jumper is gone. <laughs> it's gone. Oh, that was like... That was like five years ago when I could make any shot. Now the scouting report is easy. It's like, just let this guy shoot. Nice. So, What about the the magic man, Alec Burks, and his Houdini shots? Um, am I going to offend Ben? Should we, like, are you okay, Ben? You <laughs> I'm, cover your I'm, ears? I'll plug I'm his okay. ears. I'm okay. I'm <laughs> okay. No, uh, I, I mean, everyone's amazed at Alec Burks. And actually, you know, he's had some good moments to start the season. But uh, in particular, this one about how he's just a uh, – a Houdini around the rim and he can make any shot go down with the right amount of English and spin and double clutch jackknife wizardry. And the reality is he's actually on all close shots, both in the restricted area and in the next shot category, three to 10 feet. He's actually the worst finisher right now on the jazz team. Um, Couple that with the fact that he's taking more uh, long twos. So you know, outside of 10 feet, but still inside the three-point line than anyone on the team. And pretty quickly, you start to see a picture of why Burke's field goal percentage has dropped the way it has. And, you know, he's a player who has actually backtracked in terms of his scoring and shooting numbers this year. And I think those two things are are part of the reason why. I think he just needs to, um, you know, get a little simpler on some of those finishes. As, As sexy as it is when he does those, you know, behind the back loop de loo hangs in the air forever, somehow slides it up over four defenders. I'm uh I'm I'm not sure that's the best way to be effective. Even though sometimes those herky jerky moves at the end of his drive do result in some free throw attempts. Do you, oh sorry, go ahead Andy. Just to give you some context on that, so Alec Burks is shooting only forty seven percent from his shots under five feet and then 22% in that next zone you talked about from the 5 to 9 feet. That's something where, you know, Alec Burks looks good, but he hasn't been successful thus far. And honestly, he hasn't been as successful in his career as as people think. You know, he makes a flashy play, but ends up missing a lot of the ones where he he tries to be flashy or or can be flashy, and then, you know, they they just roll off the rim. Well, you're absolutely right on both fronts, Andy. Uh, Number one, the fact that, I mean, that's what Alec is supposed to be able to do. That's why he was drafted number 12. That's what the, the book on Alec was coming out of Colorado. And you're also right on count number two, which is that it just isn't as effective, um, you know, on a percentage basis as we think it is because the ones that do connect, we get excited about and we vine them and Craig Bowler, Jack, Yale, Houdini, and everything's good and we all feel happy. But the reality is that a lot of those don't drop and, uh, and the, the, you know, comment I made in my post, it's an old Frank Layton line. 
you know, if this isn't diving, you don't get extra points for degree of difficulty. So that was my best Frank Layden for you. Uh, an impression, <laughs> by the way, of a Brooklyner from a guy sitting in Brooklyn. So nice. For whatever that's worth. Nice. Well, so, Dan, how much of this do you think might be a little bit in his head? We talk about mental versus physical. You look at his free throw rate has dropped precipitously from last year. He's not getting to the line nearly as much as he was both last year and in this year's preseason. You mentioned that he was settling for far too many mid-range jumpers, which as his biggest fan, as everyone knows I am, I've been very unhappy with. I, I don't know why he's so comfortable settling for these shots, especially with lots of time left on the shot clock. Is some of this just, and and maybe forcing things a little bit, like you're saying, in terms of getting to the basket, trying for the, the, the highlight finish and things like that, is uh, is there something going on in his head here? Does he maybe have it in his head that he's something that he's not, and he's you know he's not taking the right kind of workmanlike approach? Or do you think that this is maybe more the reality that we're seeing with him? Well, um, I think if I could speak authoritatively about what's in Alec Burke's head, I'd probably have a different job making a lot more money. <laughs> Fair. Um, I, I, I jest, but, well, here's what I would say to that. I, obviously, he's a player who um, probably has had to adjust his game more than, say, a Gordon Hayward for this Quinn Snyder offense. The other thing I'll say is he's not performing badly at those long twos. But actually, both he and Gordon Hayward are shooting really well at that 16 to 23 foot two pointer. Um, Does it seem you know, sustainable the, though? I, I don't know if it's sustainable, but you, you know, the math on that says that your expected value is better if you just step out. And, and right now, both Burks and Hayward are getting more points per 16 plus foot two point jumper than they're getting per three point jumper, even with the extra 50% added to that shot. The so Moneyball people just just shivered. Like yeah. they did. They probably turned off the radio. Sorry, guys. I'm affecting, <laughs> Sorry, uh, Daryl Morey. Yeah. No, I, I mean, you know, we all know we all know the math. We all know the the, the Moneyball stuff about why, you, uh, in general terms, you should step backwards. I'm just saying the way it's playing out for those two players, um, Hayward and Burks, they're actually shooting. They're they're just shooting amazing percentages on the long two. Um, so I'm not even necessarily saying anything is, is broken for Alec Burks, although I think as time goes on, he should learn a little bit better about how to, how to produce for himself and even others, because I think that's another place he's taken a step backwards in these early days of the Quinn Snyder era is learning how to facilitate um, within this new construct. I think he'll, I think he'll figure that out as time goes on. Um, I don't, I, that's a great question, Ben, about whether he's got some notion about what he is that's less than accurate. Um, I, I guess we'll have to see that as well. Let me ask you, one of your myths here is regarding Trey Burke and Dante Exum, and that's something we actually talked about in our last segment. It, it, you feel, it, first of all, is Dante Exum outplaying Trey Burke? You know, is it is it time to make that change based on their play thus far? I wouldn't. Um, and and when I say that, keep in mind I'm, I'm you know, a fairly decent-sized Dante Exum fanboy, and I do think, you know, I do think that for the Jazz to be title contenders any time in the next five years, it has to mean that Dante Exum, um, you know, is, is playing like a like an all-NBA guy. Um, but I, I, I mean, I do think Dante has had more flashes and more moments than Trey Burke, where you look at a play he made or, or a or not even a play he made necessarily. You just you look at the basketball IQ and just the instincts displayed on a play, and you say, "Oh my gosh, that guy's going to be good." He's had more of those than Trey Burke, 
But in terms of just being a steady influence and running the team, I still think Trey Burke is doing a better job. And even if that weren't true, or even if it's closer than, than I might be suggesting, the reality is you can't, you know, this is a guy who, um, remember when, uh, when David Locke saw him coming out of, uh, coming out of a shoot around or a practice or something with 81 games to go, he made the joke, only 81 more. And Dante Exum said, I don't know if I've ever played 81 basketball games in my life. <laughs> I just, I don't think that's a guy you can give 35 minutes right now or 30 or 25 because this guy is going to hit a wall at some point anyway. And that the size and toughness of that wall is going to be a lot bigger if you demanded that he run a team, um, you know, right from the get go. And, and even, you know, the, the stat I pointed to in the piece, even if you surround Dante Exum with the four other starters, the offense still has not clicked smoothly in the six and a half cumulative minutes that that five some has together. So I'm not even sure that you can just sort of rely on the, on the magic of having Hayward and Burks and Favors and Cantor next to him. Dante still has a ways to go, even though I get as, as excited about those early flashes as anyone. Okay, so we, we talked about this on Twitter last night, and it, it's been kind of a, a, for me, a troubling trend so far with how the Jazz have played, in particular, or I guess how the Jazz are playing. It seems like whenever Derek Favors, Ennis Cantor, Trey Burke, any of the Jazz's starters get more than one foul, two fouls is really all it seems to take, it seems like they're out for the entire rest of the half. Um, yeah, you know, Gordon yeah. Hayward last night, for example, sat, uh, pl- sorry, played only 11 oh. minutes in that first half, despite the fact that he only had two fouls in the first half. And, you know, it seems to me like Quinn Snyder is being too conservative mm-hmm. on this foul trouble thought. Uh, do you agree? I would love to ask Quinn Snyder the question. Um, I'm sure you'd love to as well. So when he gets back to Salt Lake City, hit him up. Um, and I yeah, actually I mean, did at some point. I asked him about why he held favors out, and he said, well, look, Blake Griffin is going to pick up a third foul on you. That's just the way that it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know that Kyle Korver is going to pick up a third foul on Gordon Hayward at the end of the first half last night. Yeah, I, I mean, so look, last night it probably cost the Jazz the game. They were up 13 late in the second quarter, and then, you know, playing without Gordon Hayward, they just couldn't produce points. And... uh and the Hawks came all the way back and tied it up. So, and, and then they had to, you know, engage in a pretty hard-fought second half that didn't go their way because of the, those, you know, scoreless last four minutes. So, literally, that decision probably cost Quinn Snyder, Gordon Hayward, and the Jazz the game. Now, if I were going to try to defend the philosophy, or not even defend it, but just understand Quinn Snyder's logic, I have two theories, and and I'll present them to you, and we can debate about whether they're valid or not. Um, the first one is, you know, when a guy has two fouls and you leave him out there and you just tell him, hey, be careful you don't get the third, now you have a defender out there that's playing defense with his hands in his pockets and that's probably not being as aggressive on either end because he's got that mental thing in the back of his head about, oh, I don't want to pick up number three. So do you really want a guy who's playing at 70% intensity level when you can just go to some guy on the bench and, you know, get... Ian Clark playing 100% intensity, and this metaphor probably works better if you have someone on the bench that's a little better than yeah. Ian yeah. Clark. But that's theory number one. What do you guys think? No, I, I think that's um, I, I think that's plausible when you're talking about Derek Favors, and then, sure, you've got Rudy Gobert off the bench, and then you've got a great defense, and everything works out great. When Gordon Hayward's guarding Kyle Korver, I don't think, you know, it doesn't matter, right? You know, you, 
you hope that Gordon's smart enough to not foul on the shot. And truthfully, he has shown an ability to not foul on those kind of shots. To me, Fair it's enough. not a worry. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, that's my go-to sort of retort or, or my rebuttal to people who complain about the two-foul thing. So what's um, your second theory? I, I'm, not, I'm not even bought into that being a good excuse for last night, because last night I think was a different thing. But my second theory is, um, and this is a little bit more, I don't know, ethereal, if you will. <laughs> Maybe it's just this idea, you know, we heard in the preseason and, and really from the day Quinn Snyder was hired, that he was going to bring a culture of accountability. We also know that he's an analytical guy and that the Jazz are aiming to foul less because, you know, as soon as you foul the average NBA player, you've just given up a position. If it's a shooting foul, you just gave up a possession with an average point per possession of 1.5. So maybe it's not necessarily as much about, um, you know, I'm trying to save the third foul as it is the fact that, like, hey, as a team, one of our defensive principles is we don't commit those types of fouls. You've committed two now, so I have to sit you down because from a consistency and an accountability standpoint, you know, the same way I've said all along, I'm going to sit a guy who blows a defensive assignment. You essentially just blew a defensive assignment twice, so the the edict of Quinn Snyder says, I have to sit you for a minute so you learn your lesson. That's interesting. Not, I like that theory. I'm not, I'm not sure, right? And if that were the case, I'm not even sure he'd admit that. But right. that's the only other thing I can think of where, he, where, you know, he's up 13 in the second quarter against a playoff team, an Eastern Conference playoff team, and he says, you know what, I'm just going to try the last five minutes without my <laughs> best player. That's yeah. the only other way I can think that he would go. That's this a, is a good I, idea. It is unusual. I, I I agree with you. Well, Dan, thanks for joining us. We got to go to a break, but again, thanks for all your insight. And again, everyone, uh, check out Dan's work on Salt City Hoops. Dan, thanks again. Thanks, guys. All right, so we got to go to a break, but on the other side of the break, we're going to be talking about Paul Millsap's game last night, and you know, maybe imagining a world in which the Jazz still had Paul Millsap, or maybe looking towards the future. What if they tried to re-sign him this summer? We'll also have Ian Levy of Nylon Calculus of 538 joining us on the show. This is the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Jazz down by eight. Need a quick bucket. Darren, the double pump. Dump it off to Millsap. Once three. Fires it up. Why not, Paul Millsap? Why not tonight? 36 to add to his career high. 101-96. 17 seconds. The spinner. Millsap. Three. Yes! 39! All right, here we go. Buckle up one more time. 10 seconds on the clock. D. Will pops out. Arroyo on him. He'll take the... Nope, he gives it off to Paul. One more three in him. Can you believe that? One point game. Andre with 3.4. Fires to CJ. Looking for three. Short. Rebound. Millsap. Yes! We are going to overtime at the buzzer. Millsap. All right. Welcome back into the show. This is the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. You're listening to highlights of the Miracle Miami Paul Millsap's amazing game to bring the Jazz back into that, that incredible game against Miami Heat with LeBron James, uh, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh. Craig Bolajak is so awesome. He really is. Like, I, I think people give the Jazz's broadcast crew some, some deserved 
scorn, if you will. But I, I think Craig Bowlerjack is a man who was born to say words. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that his other half is the part that gained much of it. <laughs> well, let, let's leave it at that. Yeah. But I, I do want to talk about Paul Millsap, who, who had an amazing night last night. Um, before we get into that, though, by the way, I'm Andy Larson. You're Ben Dowsett. You can follow us at Andy B. Larson or at Ben underscore Dowsett for you. Um, we're also taking phone calls for the next for the rest of the show, so you can reach us at eight seven seven three five three zero seven hundred. That's eight seven seven three five three zero seven hundred. If you want to chime in, or feel free to tweet us, and we'll read your tweets on air. But I, I Paul Millsap, awesome game last night. Thirty point seventeen rebounds against the Utah Jazz. He was really the reason that the Jazz were able to succeed last night, despite. Um, Al Horford, sorry, that the Hawks were able to succeed last night despite Al Horford and the rest of the Hawks not doing that well. So um, I, I want to talk about Paul Millsap and in particular, what if, what would this Jazz team look like if he was still on the on the roster? I, I man, he'd be so much fun. I now are are we talking about? He's not replacing any current roster member. We're just he's on the team with the current roster, and maybe you know somebody yeah. on the very end. If of the, the Jazz had kept him in free agency two seasons ago. I think it'd be so much fun. He'd be, he'd be. I mean, you think about a motion system. He'd be great. The guy can dribble the ball from the perimeter. He can handle it anywhere. He can even run little mini pseudo fast breaks when you need things like that. He'd be great for that. He can shoot. He's got range. They've allowed him to go out to three this year, which you really wish had happened while he was here in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um, some things like that. I think. I think it'd just be insanely fun. He and of course he'd be more of a veteran presence to help out some. Of, we talked about the front court issues earlier. He'd be there to help that sort of thing out. Remember Paul Mills talked about how good Quinn Snyder was for his offense and defense last season as an assistant coach for the Atlanta Hawks. I think that might be a good fit moving forward for next season. If if the Jazz want to use their free agency money, which they will have some cap room next year, I think Paul Millsap may be a good fit for the Jazz. I, you know, it's some people think it's crazy, but I think LeBron James showed us this summer that anything is possible. Anything is possible. We've got a caller, Jeff, who's called in to talk about the Utah Jazz. Jeff, what's going on? Yeah, hey, I uh, want to uh, weigh in on, on uh, the conversation about uh, Millsap. I to- totally agree that he would, it would be unbelievable to have, have him back in, in the fold because then you got a, a set starting lineup, right? you got uh, Burke at the point, Burke's at the two, uh, Gordon at the small forward, uh, Millsap goes big forward, then you got Favors and Cantor uh, one and two at, 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 the, at the five spot. Um, and if if you had Millsap all along, I think you, they probably wouldn't wouldn't sign Trevor Booker. Although I love what Booker brings, but if you had Millsap and Booker backing him up, man, that would be a that would be fantastic. So your your dream jazz lineup then is to have Millsap and Booker as as your two power forwards and and Favors and Cantor as your two centers. Then. But what about Rudy? Root Rudy in there as well. Rudy in there as well in that in the rotation at five. I mean, to be fair, I, I think it's. I think you do need that five-man rotation, especially with injuries in the NBA. Jeff, thanks so much for the call. Yep, thanks. I, I agree. I, I think he could fit in. Paul Millsap could fit into this Jazz roster and Jazz system in this motion system with Quinn Snyder really well offensively. I, I think there are some defensive questions with how a Millsap favors lineup does, mm-hmm. um, but I think that lineup plays a lot like Atlanta did last season. And, and Atlanta was a pretty good team at the end of last year. They, actually, they at very, the beginning of last year. They had their moments the entire year last year, and he was one of the key cogs in it, all-star. And, of course, with Booker, there could be some overlap there, but Booker's only on contract this year and next. 
And if you determine after that that Millsap's the better fit there, then all of a sudden he can be the guy. And he's unguaranteed for next season. So if you're oh, like, right, hey, let's let's sign Paul Millsap as as the rich man's Trevor Booker, if you will, then yeah, you can if you want trade Trevor Booker. With how he's played thus far, though, I wouldn't be surprised if the Jazz were able to get something from him in a trade. Absolutely. I think he'd be, a, especially as a non-guaranteed, we've seen how valuable those can be in the league now, especially with teams that are trying to kind of manipulate their cap around a little bit, what Cleveland did this offseason with the Keith, Keith Bogans trade, things like that. I think there's absolutely some teams that would look into that. The Jazz could get some real value. What if the Jazz, and this is kind of tying together what we talked about at the beginning of the show and just now, what if the Jazz were able to package Trey Burke if they decided to, that Don Dante Exum was a man at point guard, and Trevor Booker together in his expiring contract for a bigger contract of a guy making ten, eleven, twelve million dollars per year, and and you know really make next season the one where they take that leap to a contending team. What type of a player are you targeting? Is my question mm. there, and he, and my other thing is this, and I'm not potentially down the line opposed to thoughts of that Trey Burke might get traded. I'm okay with that. But especially if Dante Exum fills into the superstar shoes that we're thinking are possible for him. Here's the thing, though. You need a backup point guard on your team. Sure. And Trey, and Trey Burke, Burke is, still, is a good backup point guard. Is, and he's still making money that you can afford at the moment for a competent backup point guard, which at the moment he's playing. I don't know that he's been playing at backup level right now, but he's – I think that it's – He's it's, at least a backup yeah, point guard. I think yeah, that's fair. I think you'd be remiss to say that Trey Burke isn't good enough to be a backup point guard right now in the NBA, and if he's good right. enough for it right now, he's definitely going to be in a couple years also. That's the only thing I worry about when we talk about those is who's going to fill that role. But if you can get somebody coming back in the trade who's capable of filling that role along with the superstar you're talking or the pseudo superstar you're talking about, sure, look, look into I, it. I, I think you can find a backup point guard, right? I, I worry more. I think if you can get a if you trade Trey Burke and Trevor Booker for a piece that makes a difference, say a starting shooting guard, you can move Alec Burks to the bench and, and have him play in that six man scoring role. I, I think that would be a bigger impact than. Sure, you don't have a, a replacement backup point guard right away, but I think it's easy enough to find guys who can who can play decent enough backup point guard if if the if the need comes there. Take a big shot at Wesley Matthews. <sighs> Wesley Matthews would be fun. Yeah. Bring him back. He's I mean, in, he's re- he's unrestricted after. Or, yeah, yeah, that's the thing is he'll be a free agency. He'll be in a free agent this year as well. So maybe maybe the Jazz look at taking him. I mean, I, I think it's something that the Jazz need more shooting. Um, more than anything else in order to make this kind of offense work. Yeah. And and that's a player they should look for as someone who would fit into that. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it could be a fun idea. You never know. How good is that team? Oh, I, with I Millsap. Mean, with Millsap? And and are we saying if we did, went out and looked for like a Wesley Matthews Sure, type? let's say, yeah, like, your lineup is Exum, Wesley Matthews, Gordon Hayward, Derek Favors, and Paul Millsap. Next year? Sure. Exum's still really young. Uh, but that's that's a team that I think challenges for an eight seed in the West. That's even, not even in a difficult West. But then, West. so you've you've lost yourself an end game a little bit, right? Like, is that going to ever be an All Star team? I say, or or, or you not know, a title sorry, contending, contending team, team, not an All Star team. Obviously. I don't know. That's the thing, and that, I think a lot of that would depend on how how quickly uh, Dante Exum's curve, developmental curve, came about. If he, you know, that's if true. he was a Damian Lillard who was an All Star by his second year, then m- maybe. But if he wasn't, and it's gonna be, and of course, remember, he's a very very young rookie. He's nineteen. He's not gonna be at your typical prime physical age for another four, three, four years. Right, Lillard had four years of college. Exactly, so there's, that's a big difference there. I, I do think still it's a tad early on the timeline to look at something like that, but boy, that team would be fun. At some point, though, I think the Jazz need to make that leap from, you know, we're just rebuilding, we're playing young guys, to finding that piece that can be can be a star, can 
add talent, can add wins to this roster because, you know, at some point losing isn't good enough anymore. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. We've I- got another caller just before we go out of the break. Um, Dave, what do you got for us? Uh, hey, hi, guys. How are you tonight? Good. How hey, are you I love doing? Your sh- love your show. Thanks. I'm listening each week. So my, uh, my question is... Um, my question is, you know, the Jazz as a young team um, are showing signs of having that typical young team problem closing out games. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Would they benefit, and it ties into your Millsap discussion, would they benefit from having a little bit more veteran presence on, on, the, on the court at those crucial times at the end of games? I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the question there, Dave. I, I, I think absolutely. I think there's no question that when you look at a roster that's got everyone on the roster but one player who doesn't play very much at the age of 26 or younger, you're going to be lacking some of the type of, and this is an intangible, meaning that we can't tangibly uh, quantify it, you know? See, and I would disagree with you there. I, I think that this whole youth and age thing is overblown in terms of huh. how okay. it allows you to finish out games. You know, like we've seen the Oklahoma City Thunder close out a lot of games over the last few years. And sure, they have, you know, guys like Nick Collison and Kevin Perkins, guys who have, quote Kendrick. unquote, Kendrick, sorry, Kendrick <laughs> Perkins, who guys who have, quote unquote, been there before. Mm-hmm. But it's not those guys making the plays that are winning Oklahoma City ball games late in the game, right? It's, they're not making it's the plays. Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant. They're not making the plays, but they're there talking to the guys who are making the plays. They're telling you this is what you should expect from these guys. They always do this in these late game situation, or they're the ones that you know they know the opposing tendency. Sure, I but the coaching staff knows that too. True, and I, and I I see your point, but I even as the the, the analytics guy that I am, who cares mostly about the numbers and the data and things like that, this isn't hard data, but I I really do think that there is something to this this whole idea of you you need to have an end of you need to have some people that have been there at the end of the game and then know what to expect and we've seen especially last night we saw the jet that offense just sputtered and died at the end of the game when they were looking for somebody to kind of seize the reins you'd hope that gordon hayward sure. would do it and he kind of just wasn't there but but it did at the end of the first half too i i don't know i i, I think i let's ask ian about this let's have I ian agree. as a tiebreaker nice. how about that so ian levy is going to be joining us on the other side of the break he's from nylon calculus hardwood hardwood paroxysm and 538 He'll be our tiebreaker as to the question is whether or not the Jazz's youth is getting in the way. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on Utah's number one sports talk, ESPN 700. Welcome back into the show. This is the Salt City Hoops show on ESPN 700 Radio. I'm Andy Larson. This is Ben Dowsett on the other side of the table. Um... My Twitter handle, by the way, is at Andy B. Larson. We've got at Ben underscore Dowsett. And now we've got at Hickory High joining us. That's Ian Levy of Nylon Calculus and a other, bunch of other websites. Ian, are you there? I am. How are you guys? Good. Actually, let's have you start out with it. Tell me all the different places you've written for and, and what you do and, and who you are. Um, uh, I, uh, I've written for quite a few places, more than, <laughs> uh, more than this segment will allow. But uh, right now, mostly, I'm... Uh, running uh, Nylon Calculus, which is a basketball analytics site for the fan-sided network. Um, I've also written for 538, The Classical, The Cauldron, and uh, a bunch of other places. Basically all the good, the really good places for basketball analytics on the Internet. I'd like to, I'd like to think so. Good. Well, uh, I wanted to get your perspective. Obviously, you watch a lot of basketball. You're, you're a national analyst, but you've also got the, the analytics background to back up what you say. Uh, I want to get, first of all, your 
your impressions of the Jazz season thus far? Are they are they overperforming, underperforming? Uh, you know, tell me what your base impressions are. Um, they've looked good the times that I've seen them. Um, I, uh, I I thought they would be better than they were last year. I thought. Um, I don't know, I thought the improvement would come quicker, but uh, uh, it seems like some things have picked up for them this year. I think Snyder's been good. It seems like there's um, sort of some system changes that they've made that have been working well for them on the offensive end. Uh, Hayward looks a little more comfortable offensively, and it it, it seems like things are sort of uh, fitting together for them. There's obviously still a lot of work to do, but it seems like they're moving in a good direction. Ian, so before we uh, before we had you on, before our last break, we were talking a little bit about the Jazz's relative inexperience and the fact that this is a super young team. Everybody's under 26 except for Steve Novak. And we've seen at least some people, myself included, would maybe attach a little bit of this inexperience to some of their issues late in games that we've seen in these last couple of games. What what do you think of that from the analytics perspective and from sort of the, the high-level thinking perspective? Is that something that's that's really the case, or is that more of a myth that's in our minds that young players can't close games, especially when they've got you know a coaching staff and people like that around to help them with those sorts of things? Um, I'm not sure of any specific research into this. I know there was a paper at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference um, maybe three years ago, um, and... Uh, the, the paper was looking not at uh, a player's chronological age, but looking at the uh, the length of time that the players had been together. And so cohesiveness and consistency was a positive indicator for success. So the longer a team had been playing together, regardless of how young or, or old the players were, that was a good sign. And then I think um, I think with some you know with some heavy research, I think we'd find that obviously minutes would be a much bigger indicator than age. You know, you have players who come into the league at at 19, you have players who come into the league you know after playing in the D league or overseas and they're 23 or 24. Um, so I think it's less about age and more about experience. And obviously, you know, the, uh, with with Burke and um, and uh, Exum and, and uh, some players like that, that there's still some some reps that needed to be had. How about on, on the mid-range shots? That's another thing we, we learned from our first guest, Dan Clayton, is that the Jazz are taking a lot of mid-range shots, but actually their, their EFG, you know, even giving the, giving the credit for the three-point shots, they seem to be doing better at these 16 to 22 foot jumpers than they are behind the arc. Is that first of all is that sustainable and second of all is that surprising to you given this Jazz's roster? Uh, a little bit because they know uh, long twos was something that they struggled with uh, last year. I know especially was a problem for Hayward. Um, uh, uh, I, I actually didn't have numbers just in front of me, but I pulled up an article that was in Nylon Calculus today. One of our guys, Blake Murphy, wrote an article, and by his numbers, the Jazz are actually taking fewer mid-range jump shots overall this year, more shots at the rim, and more three-pointers. Um, so I think probably over the course of the season, the field goal percentages from those different areas will sort of level out, um, and in the grand scheme of things, taking a more efficient shot selection is you know is to their advantage. It may just be that they're taking only the open mid-range jump shots, you know, only when it's, it's a no-brainer to do so, and that's why they're hitting so many of them. Yeah, and that's a fair point. You know, uh, lots of times... Um, the, the analytics argument on shot selection is characterized as just long two-pointers are bad. Um, but there's a really a lot more nuance to it than that. Um, you know, the best shot is an open shot, um, and there are cases where, you know, an open 18-footer is, you know, is preferable to maybe a contested shot at the rim or a contested three-pointer. So really when you're talking about shot selection, it's not just the location. It's who's taking the shot, what's the game context, you know, how is the shot arrived at, you know, how many dribbles, how many passes, um, 
all, all of those sorts of things, you know, are, are, val- are variables that need to be accounted for as well. Guys, this is Ian Levy on with us of Nylon Calculus and lots of other places on the internet <laughs> also. Um, now, Ian, you actually took a look yourself uh, on Nylon Calculus. I believe it was something around a week and a half ago or so about mid-range shots. I'm, I'm not mistaken there, right? Uh, I may have been someone else. I've written a lot about mid-range shots ah, over the past. Ah, okay. Well, my, my fault. That's, uh, yeah, that's fine. Uh, essentially, what I'm what I'm wondering is, are, my thought with the with these shots, and I, I guess too, a lot of this, of course, goes into the context of watching it and seeing the actual shots themselves. I've thought that the Jazz are forcing too many of the, even, even though, as you say, Blake's data from his piece earlier today is maybe showing that they're not doing so much of it and they're taking a little bit more of a money ball approach. At what? How do we within the analytics sphere? How do we differentiate between things like? settling for mid-range shots versus what Andy was saying before of only taking the no-brainer obvious ones that are there. Well, so there's this whole new there's this whole new uh, array of data that's available now from the SportView system. There's a new set that's released now that's publicly available on NBA.com, and so you can look at, at shots by players and by team, and so you can see things like the average defender distance, how far away the defenders are, and things like that. Um, and so, so really, when it comes down to shot selection, we're now able to see a little bit more. We're able to see a little bit more data. Um, and so, you know, if you really want to break down the jazz, the jazz's shot selection and whether they're getting the kind of shots they want. You'd want to be looking at location. You'd want to be looking at the distribution of the different players who's taking the shots. And then you'd want to be, be able to tell if they were open or assisted. Um, you know, certain players you want, um, uh, you know, taking shots off drives. Um, certain players you want, uh, you know, you don't want favors dribbling the ball. You don't want Gobert dribbling the ball. You want their shots to be catch and shoot. Um, and so, uh, catch and dunk, rather, and so so really, it's sort of putting all of those pieces together. Um, so it's not uh, you, you sort of can't just look at a single number and assess a team's shot selection because everybody, uh, you know, everybody's sort of not working on the same target. You know, the Cleveland Cavaliers may have different shot selection goals than the Utah Jazz do, which is maybe different than the New York Knicks, which is different than the Houston Rockets, and so um, you know, the, the single number doesn't capture it. You need, you know, you need several numbers, you need understanding of the players and the team goals and sort of how all of those pieces fit together. It's about two weeks from tomorrow that uh, the Jazz gave the extension to Alec Burks, the four-year, $42 million contract. I think a lot of the NBA world was surprised at how much money that was for Alec Burks. What were your impressions from, from the outsider's point of view? Uh, it didn't seem unreasonable to me, given with you know all these projections that the cap's going to go up um, you know, judging it maybe in the in the current salary context, it maybe seems like a slight overpay. When you take into account that the cap might be going up, it seems like maybe it, it could end up being a bargain. Um, and your co-host there, Ben, wrote a great article about Burks and uh, compared him some of his numbers to DeMar DeRozan. Um, and and Burks actually came out really favorably. I looked at at uh, some numbers for Burks, and the thing that I thought was really important to me was he really has one elite skill, which is getting to the basket. Um, he drew, uh, by the sport view numbers, he had 7.1 drives per 36 minutes last year, which kind of put him in the top 20th percentile in the league. Um, and that's that. You know, it's a really important skill. There's not a lot of other players on the Jazz right now who have that skill. You know, Hayward sort of struggled 
being asked to be a primary creator last year. Um, Burke hasn't really been able to do it. Uh, and Exum, you know, I think they're hoping that that's something that he grows into, but you don't want to count on that right now. And so Burke's for the next couple of years, he has this skill. He can break a defense down with the dribble. He can, uh, you know, he can distort the defense's shape and create opportunities for other people. That, uh, you know, in that context, you're not just looking at what they're going to pay him against his overall value. You're looking at what they're going to pay him versus what that value means in the current context of the team. Do you have those same drive per 36 numbers for this season? Yeah, I actually did pull them up because I anticipated we were going to talk about that. And they look much worse this year. Yeah. Um, so so the way Sport View defines drives is any touch that starts at least 20 feet away from the basket and is dribbled to within 10 feet of the basket. So he was 7.1 drives per 36 last year, uh, but he's down to 4.5 this year. Wow. Um, and it looked like a lot of, uh, by the numbers and both my perception uh, from what I've watched of him this year, it looked like it was less about he couldn't get to the basket and more about he was uh, his willingness to take pull-ups. Um, he, 44.5% of his shots this year have been pull-up jump shots, so that's more than 10 feet and taken off the dribble. Last year, only a third of his shots were pull-ups taken off the dribble. Um, and then last year, uh, more than half of his shots were taken inside of 10 feet, um, 51%, and this year it's down to 38%. So it seems like he's been a little less aggressive, a little more eager to settle. I don't know if that's, um, you know, he, he's hit that place where his next developmental step is, is proving that he can be a consistent outside shooter, and sometimes, you know, you see a young player sort of overcompensate in that regard, you know, take a lot of outside shots to prove they can make it, and in the end they sort of undermine their, their efficiency. Yeah, I was going to ask what you thought might be a little bit of the reason for it. Could the fact that he's adjusting to a new system be part of it? Could, I, I don't want this to be the answer, but could the fact that he did just sign a new contract and that maybe a little bit of that pressure is off him? We've seen this before in the NBA. It's not unheard of. Could those be factors as well? They certainly could be. You know, I don't know him. Uh, you know, I don't know him well enough, sort of on the, on the personality front, to know how those factors would affect him. My guess is that. Uh, or my my intuition would be I would go to that idea of he's in that place where he's grown, uh, you know, he's grown, he's gone through his developmental track where the next step for him in, in becoming a better player is being able to consistently make outside shots. And I feel like I've watched a lot of players um, when they get to that point, their first instinct is to sort of force the issue. And, you know, uh, I watched Lance Stevenson do it with the Pacers, who are the team I follow the closest. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a hundred a hundred examples of young players who need to prove that they can shoot from the outside, and so they do it by maybe taking some bad outside shots. Let me kind of go around the league with you a little bit right now. What is your biggest surprise this season, of, of the young season thus far? Um, I'm surprised that the Rockets have been so well, especially, um, you know, they... Um, I thought maybe they would take a small step backwards. I think Ariza is a good fit for them, but I thought Parsons was a little bit more versatile, and then it seemed like some of their depth was gone. It seemed like they had more uh, question marks um, sort of further down the bench, but they've looked really, really good every time I've seen them. Um, uh, the Pacers have been kind of a disappointment. That's the team I follow closest, and uh, you know a lot of the analytics uh, projections had them uh, sort of surprisingly for some people challenging, you know, for a seventh or eighth seed in the East, and um, obviously struggling with injuries. But they've been they've been an absolute disaster. How about this Dallas Philadelphia game going on right now? It's oh eighty four to thirty seven midway through the third quarter. Yeah, I, I haven't actually had it on. I was recording a podcast uh, with another Nylon Calculus guy right before this. So uh, I've just been seeing the scores on Twitter, and 
I'm probably going to do myself a favor and not turn it on. <laughs> it's probably the best idea. What do you think about Sacramento? They're about to pull out a road, as long as they don't blow it, they're about to pull out a road win against the previously 7-1 and one Memphis Grizzlies. Do you think this team is for real, or is there a, a massive uh, regression to the mean coming here? Uh, I think there's some regression to the mean coming. I think, um, you know, if you if you look at what's been driving their success so far, their defense has been really good. I think um, it may not be quite as good as it's as it's shown so far, but I think I think their defense is better, and I think they'll be able to count on that. Um, their free throw rate has been has been absurd lately. Um, uh, just getting to the line a ton, and I don't think that's sustainable. Um, and then I wrote something for the Washington Post. Um, last week about Rudy Gay and his shot selection is pretty much the same this year in terms of where he's taking his shots. Um, but he is shooting an absurd, uh, he's shooting an absurd percentage on contested shots. He's shooting something like 70% on shots where the defenders is less than two feet away from them. And he shot well, like pretty good. You know, 30, yeah, he shot like 38% on those last year. Uh, so he may not be that bad, but I, I don't think he's going to be nearly as good as he's as he's looked these first two weeks. I don't shoot that percentage on wide open, uncontested layups. Like <laughs> seriously, that my, yeah, that was my point. <laughs> I, I I think that's funny that you said though that the Kings can count on their defense. That's something that we haven't ever really seen from them in you know at least the last decade. Yeah, I, uh, and one of our nylon calculus writers does some work with rim protection statistics, and he um, sort of works with the sport view numbers and does some permutations. Um, and we were talking about that earlier this evening, and uh, DeMarcus Cousins looks really good in those numbers. Uh, I think he was a, po- a net positive there last year, but he looks even better this year. Hmm. And actually, I forgot to mention this earlier, but um, right now Rudy Gobert is at the top uh, uh, in Seth's uh, rim protection stats in terms of uh, point saved over an average center per 36 minutes. Rudy uh, Rudy Gobert is at the top, and he's contesting 73 percent of the uh, uh, of an opponent's field goals um, inside uh, inside of five feet when he's on the floor, which is uh, by far the highest number in the league. So the Stifle Tower is is in full effect, I suppose. Yeah, and one of the really interesting things about those numbers is you think about Gobert, you think about his rim protection and how it has to do with his, you know, his height and his um, and his wingspan. But those numbers, they're tracked by SportView. They're all about body position. So when they're talking about contesting a shot, they're talking about his the proximity of his torso to the player who's shooting. So he's contesting that number of shots before you even take into account how tall he is and how long his arms are. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's incredible. Well, Ian, yeah. thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Tell us again where we can find your work. Uh, NylonCalculus.com and uh, plenty of other places. I'm on Twitter, uh, Twitter at Hickory High, and uh, you can find links to everything else there. Thanks a lot for having me on, guys. Yeah, of course. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, Ian, if you haven't checked it out already, does really great work um, in the analytics community. He really is kind of like the binding force that keeps all of us nerds together. And, Ben, you write for a site as well. So, uh, I mean, Ian's, Ian's great. Thanks again. He really, he really is. It's it's so much fun to work with Ian in general. He's one of the nicest people you'll meet as well. I, I've honestly just I, I can't say enough about the luck I've had with my editors, both, <laughs> both you yourself and, and, and Ian and the guys over at B-Ball Breakdown as well are just awesome. I've been really lucky with all of them. And, and yeah, I'm it, blushing. It, yeah, you should be. Uh, <laughs> kind of like you said, Ian is one of those people who really – bridges the gap between those of us nerds and those of us, you know, old school basketball types. He's he's one of those people that speaks to both of them, that has the highest level of respect from both groups. 
And and that to me, that's the real name of the game is the people, you know, and I, I, I try and model my own analysis after that type of thing as much as possible. The people that are really, truly taking in all available context and information, making their decisions that they have from there. I think that's the best way to analyze the game. I, I don't think you'll hear any arguments from me. I want to ask you about this before we go to the break. Adam Silver had this piece today, um, this afternoon on the New York Times, at the New York Times, sorry, um, about legalizing and regulating sports betting. And, and I think this is an unprecedented position for a oh, absolutely. NBA commissioner, for really anybody with any power within sports to say, hey, maybe we should, instead of you know outlawing gambling overall like it is in every state outside of Nevada, maybe we should regulate it. Maybe we should see where this $400 billion industry, the, the estimate for how much is illegally gambled on sports betting each year in the NBA. Maybe we should regulate it. Maybe we should allow this to, to happen like it does in Europe and other places overseas. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super intriguing. That, and he actually penned it himself. It's not as if they right. put somebody else on the byline. He did it. And by the way, if you have some thoughts, we've got a few more minutes left. We can open the phones up, phone lines up again. Right? Yeah, so our number is number? 877-353-0700. That's 877-353-0700 if you want to uh, give your thoughts on what anything that Ian said, anything about the sports betting topic or really anything about the Utah Jazz. Um, but uh, I, I just think this is this is a completely new thing that we're seeing in terms of anybody with power being for sports betting. I mean, it's such that th- there are rumors that Michael Jordan was was banned from the year for two sp- sorry, banned from the sport of basketball for two years because he was gambling. You know, Pete Rose was banned for life from baseball because of gambling. Now a major commissioner wants to legalize it in the NBA. That That's a gigantic step. I think that to a point, what makes that so surprising is a, a number of misconceptions about what legalizing gambling in this sense would do. I think people are thinking, oh, you legalize this and all of a sudden we're let's say Michael Jordan did bet on basketball or let's do, you know, we can use Pete Rose as an example where if if we're going to legalize it, then that's going to start happening all the time. You're going to have these players through their through friends of theirs or whoever trying to throw games or trying to shave points or all the varying various uh, gambling discrepancies we've had over the years. In reality, the opposite is true. In reality, regulating this and putting a larger because right now gambling illegally is not hard. I could have a bet in on an NBA basketball game by the end of the night. I felt <laughs> like it, it would not be very di- it would not be difficult for me at all. It's it's not hard. And so if it's not hard for me, it's not hard for an NBA player or an NBA coach or a Tim Donahue NBA referee to get those illegal bets made anyway. And if they can do that anyway, and there's no regulation for those sorts of things, there's no regulation for things that tend to indicate that sort of cheating will be unnatural spikes in, in lines to a game, things like that. There's no way of regulating that stuff right now, but if you legalize it, all of a sudden, that sort of stuff is you can have computers and analytics all over that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I, in my opinion, and I think in the opinions of the majority of informed folks on this, the, the issues that you have with the point shaving and, and dishonesty and things like that go way, way down with a legalization. Yeah, because you you don't have the quote-unquote criminal element. That being said, I, I do think it's something that you have to be considerate about whether or not that would impact the the integrity of the game so to speak i i I think you know if you do have players and coaches and you know team officials that sort of thing let's say conceivably able to legal to legally bet on the own games and their own teams that they're involved in i i think that sort of thing can can be a negative influence on on the integrity of the game on on 
each team trying their hardest on, you know, things like injury reports being released on times, things like referee reports being released. I, I think that's something that if they do go in this direction of legalizing, it will have to be watched very carefully. There, oh, yeah. And Silver is very specific to mention that in the article that he wrote, that, that, that these sort of things have to be really carefully regulated and that if – if there are lapses in that sort in that sort of thing, you're going to have issues, right? But I think I don't think that instituting those checks and balances in the year 2014 or by the time it gets legalized, probably 2015, mm. I don't think that's too big of an issue. I think it's something that can be done. Interesting. Let's let's hear what Chuck's take is on this. Chuck, are you there? Guys, I uh, I just had a question about Derek Favors actually. Sure, um, no, that's fine. Last night in the game, Favors had a. A pass that he caught at the top of the key and looks like he's going to drive to the basket and then shoots a pass that sails over Booker's head. And to me, it seems like he's got a lot of this um, the kind of deer in the headlights mentality still. And for a number two pick who's been there for five years, I just I'm wondering if this is still going to be a problem or you guys think that Snyder is going to uh, get this out of the way. Thanks for taking my call. Well, uh, thanks for the question, and, and you know, and it's it's well worded, and of course, it came at a very important time in the game. That was, right. I believe, with the Jazz down two points or something like that, and under a minute left in the game, down so, of one course, point, down so. one point, yeah. So, so it's a big highlight, of course, and but the, I think the thing that you have to look at here is process versus results, and. He had the right idea. If that pass goes where it's supposed to go, Trevor Booker gets a dunk and the Jazz are up. And he, he just, whether the ball slipped out of his hands or he was too overeager, the right thing didn't happen, right? Yeah, I, I don't even know that he was overeager or the ball slipped out of his hands. I think he thought Trevor Booker was going to stay there for that 15-foot jump shot, and instead Trevor Booker cut into the rim for that dunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've seen the Jazz run both of those you know, to success. We've seen that baseline 15-footer be a part of their success for a couple of years now. I think that's what Derek was expecting there, and it, and it didn't happen. Yeah, and overall, though, in terms of the way Derek has played, especially when receiving the ball on those those pick-and-roll type of plays where it's, okay, you've got to make sure your footwork's right, roll to the hoop, look back, receive the pass, and then as you turn forward, there's likely going to be a body or two right in front of you, especially in Derek's case because they, they know they can't let him go to the hoop with speed because he's going to kill them. And that's, I think he's actually improved a lot in terms of his decision-making this year from last year. He's incorporated what we call the short roll into his game, which is where you don't roll the whole way to the basket. You stop up around the free-throw line, nail area, take the shot from there. He's been good on those shots, if, I, uh, if my eye test is telling me correctly. Um, and he's made a few good passes out of it as well, which, you know, last the one in the very important situation last night didn't work out how he wanted it to. But, I, again, I think the process is moving in the right direction. There. Yeah, to, to back up your point, Derek Favors' assist percentage has gone up each season he's been in the NBA in all yeah. five seasons, up from 4.2% his rookie season all the way up to 9.5. I think he is taking those steps. Of course, he's still going to make mistakes. But, truthfully, I think those are those are fifth-year big-man mistakes, things that are just going to happen. It just came at an a unfortunate time of last night's game. I would agree. Let's go ahead and take our next break. Uh, you're listening to the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700 Radio. Talking hoops and the association. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. I'm thinking about long term. I'm thinking about after I'm done with basketball, um, having graduations to go to, having meetings to go to. I don't want to be on my meetings all sore or be at my son's graduation all sore just because of something I did in the past. So. Just learn, um, learning and being smart. 
His voice is literally cracking during that quote. Sorry, this is the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700. I'm Andy Larson, Ben Dowsett on the other side. That was Derek Rose talking about his injury status and why he's not rushing back from his injuries. And literally just seconds ago, fell down on the floor in, in Chicago. Um, he seems very injury prone at this point in his career. Please so, be okay, Derek. That being said, is that right for a player to not want to come back from injury you know, not want to be out there for his team on the floor so he can go to quote unquote meetings in his in his post career. So here's my thing. I, first of all, I think we need to take into account that this is a player in Derrick Rose who for the entirety of his career has been two things with the media. The first, extremely candid. Like well, one of the most candid athletes out there. We saw you remember when he was hurt a couple of years ago when he broke down in an, during an interview, some things like that. Extremely candid, extremely willing to give his real thoughts. And second of all, in some cases, not the best in the world at relaying those thoughts, I think, in the manner that he wants them relayed. And I think this is absolutely another of a countless list of examples of that happening, where I don't think Derrick Rose was meaning to say from that comment that the meetings that he's going to have later in his life are more important than him being on the basketball court right now. And... Overall, my my thoughts on this issue and to the resulting backlash that came out and a, a couple of writers, to use the term lightly, uh, writing some pieces about how disgraceful he was for saying those things and how uh, disgusting it was to them, I have a big problem with that, with them saying that and with that being the thought. This is a person who you don't need to, to hear a quote from him or anything. You just need to watch him on the court to see how much this person cares about what's going on out there. And Derrick Rose didn't want this to happen. Derrick Rose right. didn't want to be this way. He wanted to play a 15-year productive NBA career and win titles for Chicago, who is, by the way, if there's a more beloved athlete in a city in the world, please find them for me. I, I, I really think that it's a problem that our first reaction to that as or at least some people's first reaction to that type of a statement is oh i'm i'm outraged by that <laughs> you're a professional athlete I, i'm never going to make the amount of money in my life that you make in one year so you know quit whining i like your outrage sports fan voice thank you it was, it's a good one right? <laughs> I, I, I like it too uh I, i'm i just i don't agree with that viewpoint at all i sure he phrased it badly he shouldn't have made it seem like meetings might take a might take precedent in his life over being on the basketball court but of course he's not rushing it's november why would you want to rush a guy right. like that back anyway? And we hear time and time again about these athletes whose post-career lives are, are destroyed by their injuries during their career, and especially in football, although I think it does happen in basketball. Now, and I, at, I think Derek Rose hears yeah. those stories too. I mean, he's around those guys all the time and just doesn't want to be like them, and I think he just put it in the wrong sort of terms. Yeah, I, I think... Especially if you're going to write a takedown piece on him, the hottest take, the most scorching take in the world, you're, and you're not even going to look at the context in which he made the statements, like they, them talking about the fact that he's got both ankles sprained right now, which is the context under which he made those statements, not that he just made them generally, like, yeah, this is the attitude I'm taking the rest of my career is like, got to be ready for those board meetings when I get older, like... I I found it. I found the pieces, those two pieces that I'm not even going to mention links to because then they'll get more clicks, which was exactly their goal in the first place. <laughs> all, I found that all those, that those were knee jerk reactions that were 
really, really out of place, in my opinion. I think that's fair. Go, keeping going around the NBA, let's talk about what's going on around the association. First of all, <laughs> the Mavericks are putting a beat down on Philadelphia. There's a great uh, tweet. I just retweeted it from Alex Kennedy, NBA. My tweet, my timeline, by the way, is at Andy B. Larson. Um, of Dallas winning 64-26 to at home in Dallas. And literally, the, the Mavericks fans are so bored that they are reading the newspaper as, as this game goes on, oh my goodness! <laughs> like at a certain point, if you're up forty in the second quarter, it's it's time to read the paper. Might as well get that out of the way. Oh no, Philadelphia is just like it's just oh no. That's all you can really <laughs> say at this point. Though you know the Lakers are a pretty big embarrassment, but the difference between the Lakers and Philadelphia is that to some degree the Lakers are trying to win. While we're laughing at teams, let's keep going and talk about the LOL Lakers. Um, and how they, again, we talked, we referenced this in the first half of the show, but they have, uh, they are on pace for the worst defense in NBA history (laughs) by several points, actually. Okay. Several is a lot by two or three points per game. The worst defense in NBA history. (laughs) I just find it really funny. I'm sorry. (laughs) I do. I, and you know what? It's not that surprising when you look at their roster, when you look at the only player who historically in his career has even been a decent defensive player on this roster is 37-year-old Kobe Bryant. And he is not one of those anymore. And even if he was, the guy does not care enough on that end to be doing it. No. And, you know, Carlos Boozer and I could Jeremy Lin. Like, we could keep going. And a bunch of unproven guys who nobody even really knows. Ed Davis is nice, as we've, as we've said. Ed Davis is nice, and he's... Gosh, I hope he can find a better circumstance for himself at some point. But... uh this is a really bad team. I'd be shocked if they finished anywhere but 15th in the Western Conference. Do you think they even have the slightest shot? Today on the, the the Grantland Sports Hour, actually, they had Ramona Shelburne on, who's the, the main Lakers and Clippers beat person. She's awesome, by Does the way. Does a great job. Ramona is really, really good. And she was saying that it's, in her mind, not out of the question that they may try and package their pick from next year for a guy like a Josh Smith or like a Darren Williams or somebody like that this year to try and take a run at the eighth seed. And of course, the immediate thought there is they've got it. They can't. That's just more, that's just more LOLs for yeah, me. Like, a, sure, a Josh more. Smith and Darren Williams, I'm sure those guys will help you yeah. in 2006. I mean, like, yeah, right. they are, they really are building the best, like, 2007 NBA team that you can imagine with, with Darren Williams. If, you know, imagine. Darren or Josh Smith being there. And then of course Kobe Bryant and Carlos Boozer. I, I just I just find what they're doing hilarious that they that they're legitimately thinking, let's still make a run for this playoffs. I mean, Kobe's timeline is running out and, and I think that's illustrated by that he's just set the uh record for the most field goal misses in NBA history. You know? <laughs> I was waiting for that. Thank you, John. But I, I don't, I, I just, I think it's funny. I mean, how many times can you make a win now move to have it not work out before you learn it's not the right thing to do? Yeah, well, and you wonder whether there's, whether there are a number of, and I think I saw an article, and I apologize, I can't remember who wrote it or anything like that, but the, the, the tune of the article was essentially what percentage of the Lakers front office knows they're tanking. <laughs> like what what you know what group it does the owner know that they're because they are this is a tank team there maybe they're tr- they think they're trying to win think, games but if they but make a trade then they're not tanking that's true i guess then I, I don't know that would be really indicative of what the main train of thought in the front office is right? yeah no that's a good point we'll keep a close eye on the lol lakers moving forward um also not a good team and i think i keep looking at the bad situations in the nba more than the good situations because i need something to laugh with regards to how the jazz are that being said denver last night allowed 84 points to portland in the first half um they're currently i believe one and six or one and seven uh 
Denver to me has always kind of been a spirit franchise for the Jazz, not only just because they are so close, they're, they have the high altitude, they have the excellent home court advantage as a result, but then they also made similar trades in, in the season of 2010-2011 when they traded their superstars, Darren Williams, Darren Williams and Carmelo Anthony, to the two New York franchises. And, you know, at first, Denver did really well. They got they probably got the better return. They they made the playoffs right away. Uh, and then since then, since George Carl was fired, it, it's been a slope downhill. Um, I, I mean, I I just think that maybe maybe Kevin O'Connor was right to take the the picks and the youth over the, you know, the semi-experienced Danilo Gallinari and, and the package that Denver got. I think you're you're kind of talking about a long game versus a short game, right? Yeah. Like the Jazz were willing to accept a couple of years, and maybe this year is another one of them, we'll see, of, of kind of being below par while they build up their young pieces, whereas Denver, guys like Andre Iguodala, they've got a follow on the roster this year who's a bit more of a veteran presence as well, although there's talk that he may get moved, and a number of guys may get moved because they've got like 14 reasonable quality NBA players, <laughs> but none of whom are actually that good, like mm, above right. average. Um I think it's an interesting comparison. Do you think that George Carl being fired had a lot to do with it, or yes. do you think that just happens to be a coincidence? No, I think that is the largest factor. So you're a George um, Carl guy. I think I I am. I, I thought George Carl would have been a good hire for the Jazz. Okay. Um, and I know that there are questions about how he deals with youth, but I think that he's put enough evidence out on the floor that he raises the win totals of the teams that he's coached. And I think we've seen that in in Denver. We saw that in Seattle. I, I think. George Carl was the biggest mistake, uh, letting him go. And then, of course, letting Masai Ujiri go to Toronto. I, I just don't know what their front office and coaching staff is doing in Denver. Well, and so, all right, so in that case, what do you think about Brian Shaw? Because, and this is another parallel, potentially, to the Jazz, is that Brian Shaw, at the start of last season, when he was first brought in, was in many ways seen in a similar light to the one that Quinn Snyder has been seen in around Salt Lake City recently. And the results have not been there at all. That being said, I think Brian Shaw was always an old school coach, yeah, um, and never wanted to put in kind of the the modern stuff that Quinn Snyder is. I, I, you know, he's tied to the triangle um, and tried to implement that for a while, and that hasn't gone well. And, and it just never really fit his players. I, I don't think Quinn Snyder is that obstinate to to believe in his system over his personnel. Yeah, I, I think I would probably agree with that, and I do. I'm. All, I also like George Carl. I think he was nice. I, here's my thing with Ujiri, just for a second. Okay. You know, he left that group, and he's in Toronto, and he's getting all the praises now because Toronto's doing really well. They're number one in the Eastern Conference as yeah, of today. They are, although I think they're losing to Chicago right now. Well, well okay. Yeah, but anyway, um, wh- is this a case of uh, of selective praise for Masai Ujiri because the roster that he left in Denver is a smoldering group of flames now? Yeah, I I think that's, I think that's reasonably fair. But you have to, uh, to me, I think it's if given that he didn't make that coaching decision, uh, I think you have to look at how he did when he was with the franchise and and Denver when he was when Masai Ujiri was there, they were a good playoff team. I mean, they surprised a lot of people. I I don't think that's fair. And now you look at how he's doing with Toronto. Uh, again, last season and this season, surprising people with how well they're doing. I mean, sure, he built that roster in Denver, but that being said, they've made poor decisions since then that have resulted in, in the collapse of Denver. Okay, fair. So, is Toronto the best team in the East? Uh, ooh, maybe. 
I, maybe. I mean, Kyle Lowry is way better than people think. DeMar DeRozan's so taking another step. Uh, you look at, like, Valanchunas, and, and maybe he's taking another step, too. I picked Valanchunas for uh, most improved player this year. I, I think maybe. So far, it's probably not right, but I, I did pick him. I um, mean, Cleveland doesn't look like they are going to be taking that next step. Their de- their defense for now remains a huge issue until they can put it together. Could this Best is such an arbitrary term. Could this be the most complete? team in the east yes that i think that's a much more fair way and they're deep they got guys like patrick patterson grievous vasquez going to be coming he's hurt right now but when he's back going to be coming off the bench i think this is this is a fun little team to watch and my, my whole family is from toronto so uh, it's it's fun for me that and it's it's fun for them they got something to root for which is really nice because the leafs are a <laughs> anyway uh yeah the you know and DeRozan, I think, has been – well, actually, I, I think I give a little more to Lowry. He, Lowry is so amazing to watch on the basketball court. He is – you talk about a game manager and controlling the game and things like that. There's no one like him. And he, I don't even think that Chris Paul is on his level mm. currently anymore in terms of that. That's interesting. No, I, I think everyone would benefit from watching some Kyle Lowry game tape. I mean, he's phenomenal. I think if Derrick Rose continues to be injured – then Toronto is, is the most complete team in the East. We'll see how uh, Cleveland does moving forward. The last thing I want to talk about is Carmelo's hats. <laughs> Carmelo has worn three ridiculous hats this season. All of them are glorious. All of them you should look up on whatever search engine you prefer and and just see. It's a brilliant press ploy to say, every time I lose a game embarrassingly, I'm going to wear a ridiculous hat, and then you're right, the press conference is going to be about that. Yeah, the one he wore last night, I was, I'm pretty sure he took that right from my wardrobe of a, that I wore in a musical production in junior high. It's so, like the Newsies hat. Yeah. Like, and then that's be- shameful. <laughs> <laughs> and then last week he wore like a Willy Wonka blue and gold thing with, with a little Literally an unlit match in the hat band. Like, what? <laughs> there's no like he's just coming up with the most outrageous possible hats, wearing them, and then we're talking about them instead of the the. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Dennis Rodman is he? I mean, so is he doing this literally just because he doesn't want to talk about what's going on on the court, and he's just like, let's talk about my hat. So I th- I mean, he's going to have to talk about it. The reporters in the locker room ask the questions no matter what. But the overall NBA conversation about Carmelo Anthony is about the hats right now, and not how bad the Knicks are. And that that's a win for him. I think that's a huge win. I mean, can we actually say that his strategy is working? Yes. That's yes, it. it is. It's a brilliant strategy, and I hope more more players do it. Wear ridiculous hats, clothes, shoes, whatever, to to make us, you know. Pay more attention because, and honestly, they're just really funny to watch. Do we have Do we have thirty more seconds before break? Let's do it. Because if we're talking about embarrassing things, the Sacramento Kings just missed. I'm, I'm, I'm I didn't see it, but I'm reading this. The the Sacramento Kings missed two free throws up two, including the second one intentionally with .6 seconds left, and then allowed a lob to the rim to tie the game to Courtney Lee, and the game's going to overtime. <laughs> no. Sorry, that's, just. That's- Sorry. It's not a good state of affairs. <laughs> we'll be back on the other side of the break to to update you on that Sacramento Memphis game and, and how it ends up. Um and as well talk oh, no, about wait. the Jazz's upcoming schedule moving forward. You're listening to Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. Analytics and opinions on the Jazz and the rest of the NBA. This is Salt City Hoops on ESPN 700. All right, you're listening to the final segment of the Salt City Hoop show. 
By the way, we're the ESPN Troop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, so you can find our work at saltcityhoops.com or listen to the show every Thursday, 7 to 9 p.m. Um, on, right here on ESPN 700. We also have the show up as a podcast on iTunes, Stitcher's, ESPN 700 Sports after the show. So check that out. If you, if you missed any of tonight's show, you can always check out the rest of it online. So we try to watch as much basketball as possible while we're doing the show because, you know, we like to stay informed. We like to stay entertained. And we were just entertained. We were. The Memphis Grizzlies completed a 26-point comeback against the Sacramento Kings tonight. Um, We were just talking about how good Sacramento was. Just to give you the quick play-by-play, with .6 seconds remaining, the Kings had the ball, were fouled, and had two free throws to go to the line up one point. They missed both free throws. Second one on purpose. Second one on purpose to waste the time. But then Zach Randolph gets the gets the rebound. The Memphis Grizzlies call timeout with 0.3 seconds left. So with 0.3 seconds or fewer, all you can do in the NBA is a tip shot, right? Yeah, there's pretty unless it's 2000 whatever year that was Derek Fisher, which that was 0.04. That was 0.4 oh, seconds. Right. That's okay. the thing. That's the minimum amount of time in order to do a catch and shoot. Okay. Well. Well, go <laughs> the on Grizzlies Twitter and find a gym. And, and Sacramento Kings found t- taught us some new things about basketball. So they they ran a play. Courtney Lee gets open for an alley oop underneath the basket. Does this reverse layup thing that goes in is good. Completes the comeback for Memphis to win over Sacramento. Keep the best record in the Western Conference. How about that? <laughs> but that's a pretty good way of putting it. That's, Thank you, Denny. It's, it's unbelievable to leave. I mean, there was nobody within five or six feet of Courtney Lee because two guys, for some reason, both went with, I don't know whether it was Gasol or whoever the big man was on the court, that that set the, the down screen, or excuse me, the up screen, and then r- rolled up to, like, the top of the key. Why do you even cover that it guy? It doesn't even matter. Like, leave those guys open <laughs> exactly. so that they can take the shot and you will still lose. Somehow, like, literally, you should have one guy or maybe four guys in the paint guarding any alley-oops because that's the only way you lose that game. And, well, as we've talked about, the Sacramento Kings are... Um, the Sacramento Kings. The Sacramento Kings, yeah. Wow. Maybe some regression to the mean is due. Um, so anyway, check that out if you haven't already. It will be on all of your local <laughs> highlight shows later tonight. I want to talk about, though, for the rest of the show, how the Jazz will do in this upcoming stretch of games. Uh, two games left in this road trip on the East Coast. Tomorrow they'll play the New York Knicks and Carmelo's Hats. Um, <laughs> the Carmelo Hats, New York he, Knicks. You should be allowed to wear one on the court. That seems just, reasonable. It'd be, make their game so much more watchable. Yeah. So anyway, they're 2-7. and seven. They have a worse record than the Jazz, despite having Carmelo Anthony and, and uh, you know, and, Better players, I would say. Mm. Um, Behind Carmelo Anthony, I could take so I could okay, take, maybe take not issue with some of that. Yeah, but they have a superstar and and a new coach, Derek Fisher, and, uh, the Jazz villain, and they are, they are not impressing thus far, except in the realm of of hattery. Yeah, and uh, there's actually I'm going to be contributing to a little piece for Knicker Blogger tomorrow for as a little bit of a preview for the game that'll have a Jazz spin to it. So uh, I'll, I'll link that up on my Twitter and whatnot. Everybody can look at it. Yeah, the, you know the Knicks. There, there's a couple problems with the Knicks. They are, we knew they were going to be bad defensively. They lost Tyson Chandler over the offseason, and he was probably the only above-average defensive, besides Amon Shumpert, who's been nice. He's been okay, and we suggested him in our trade of the week last week. Right. Um, but here's the thing. That on top of not being too good defensively, they've got some talent offensively, but they're learning one of the more difficult-to-master offensive systems in all of basketball, that being the triangle. And... You know, it's whether Phil Jackson's in the front office, which of course he is, and but whether he's down there on the floor with these players, which he isn't, Derek Fisher is, 
it's whoever it is. It took Michael Jordan a long time to learn this offense. It's definitely gonna. Point. It's definitely gonna take the Knicks a while, and they don't have the dominant post presence type like Shaq that you really want as your as your throw into the post there to, to initiate your triangle action. For those who know how it's run. They just don't have that guy. It's going to be really hard, given the personnel that they've got, to get that running. And they're still at an early enough point where you would hope, even given their youth and inexperience, that the Jazz would be able to capitalize on some of that. I wonder if the triangles just... I, I almost worry about the triangle just becoming gone in the NBA. I think modern. I think as the NBA game progresses, they might pass it up. How, uh, how do you think the game t- tomorrow will turn out? Jazz, I, th- I think it's going to be a good game. I think Carmelo is going to do what he usually does and kill the Jazz uh, b- because the Jazz just have a thing with giving up lots of points to opposing stars. That's just kind of always been a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I would like to see the Jazz come out with this is not a New York team that can run with them. We talked about the pace before. We, I, I just I want to start seeing it. I want to start see them. Even I want Alec Burks to get some rebounds, and I don't even care if he misses one or two of them. I want him to run in to a couple guys and, and go into the teeth of it and try and get some early points for free, try and get some fouls for free, some things like that. I want to see this stuff this isn't a New York Knicks team that is that is you know raring to get out there and run a 90 foot game over and over again I want to see the Jazz's young legs come out do you think it happens do you think the Jazz win I do I think the Jazz take tomorrow yeah you know what I'm gonna agree I'm gonna agree I think the Jazz win the game tomorrow I I mean I just think that they've played well enough to win the last three games that they haven't won the last two is just kind of it's not a fluke but you know I think they put it together and and end up winning tomorrow against a, a not good opponent that being said the next game a back-to-back at Toronto, the Eastern Conference leading Toronto Raptors, who are seven and one right now. I think that's that's a schedule loss. Yeah, that's going to be you know it's what they're. I think it's like their sixth game in eight or nine nights or something like that. A bunch of them on the road, and yeah, that's that's going to be a tough game. Toronto's playing really well and may have to chalk that up as a schedule loss. Yeah, no, I, and I I don't even I think you can almost kind of throw out any, anything that happens in that game. You know, maybe they they learn something, but I you know there yeah. are just going to be some schedule losses in an NBA schedule. I think that's one of them. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is. It's an interesting matchup. The three and six Oklahoma City Thunder take on the three and six Utah Jazz at home. Our next home game Tuesday, November eighteenth. Uh, I think that's interesting to see how the Jazz match up against the starless Thunder. Yeah, you know the Thunder have been running a lot of guys whose names some people might not even recognize on their roster. Serge Ibaka's had to do a lot more than he might typically do. They've had a few issues, although they've been putting a few things together. And in some ways, it's maybe a blessing in disguise. Scott Brooks is actually forced to run some offense now rather hey. than just like, hey, give the ball to Kevin and see what happens. Uh, I think that's going to actually be a really interesting game and could be a bit of a barometer for where the Jazz are at right now is can they beat a team that is clearly lacking its punch? I, I think that's fair. I mean, the the same was true with Indiana and you know the Jazz ended up losing that game. I, I think that's a, that's a similar game for the Jazz, although this one will be at home. I, I think the Jazz fans come out. Yeah. So that's the Salt City Hoop Show for you. Thanks again for listening. Again, if you miss any of tonight's show, you can listen to it on ESPN700sports.com later on tonight. Um, we also put the podcast up on iTunes and Stitcher. Check us out if you haven't at saltcityhoops.com. We are the ESPN True Hoop affiliate for the Utah Jazz, covering the Utah Jazz on a daily basis for you. You've been listening to the Salt City Hoop Show on ESPN 700.